What's in a name? What's in a name? For the literature buffs in the audience, you will remember that this is a rhetorical question that Juliet poses to her love, Romeo, in William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. You remember that from, well, it's been a while now, right? You have to go back to high school for some of this stuff. Romeo Montague and Juliet Capulet meet and they fall in love, but their love is doomed from the beginning. Why? Because they are members of families that are in a battle with one another, warring families. Juliet, hopelessly in love with Romeo, besides their family's feud, says this to Romeo, and you'll see it, the quote up on the screen. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Here Juliet tells Romeo that a name is an artificial and meaningless convention, and that she loves the person who is called Montague, not the Montague name, not the Montague family. Romeo, out of his passion for Juliet, rejects his family name and vows, because Juliet asked him to deny his father and instead be new baptized as Juliet's lover. This one short line, what's in a name, encapsulates the, the central struggle and the tragedy of William Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet. While Juliet's assertion that a name means nothing may be true in the world of Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet, perhaps true even in a larger context in society and maybe even in the lives of men and women today, when it comes to the Bible and specifically the Old Testament, nothing could be further from the truth. In the Bible, a name is as significant as there is anything. As anything could be significant, a name is at the top of the list. A name really was a declaration of the life of a person. It was the, a name went to literally the character of the person. And in most cases, if not all, it was a prophecy over the person. And the claim that there is nothing in a name when it comes to God is as false a statement that can be made. When it comes to God, his name is everything. It reveals who he is. It reveals his character. It reveals what he does. You say, well, what does this have to do with Christmas? In the Old Testament, the prophets of God wrote down prophecies from God about a Messiah, a Messiah that was going to come, a Redeemer that was going to come, and this these prophecies brought tremendous hope. And in some of those prophecies, it is revealed what this Messiah, this Redeemer's name would be. You're familiar with Isaiah chapter 9. I believe Trey brought it up even in the worship. Isaiah 9, 6, you'll see it on the screen. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There is another place in Isaiah that is also familiar to many people where it is told what his name would be as well. And that place is found in Isaiah 
the seventh chapter, and that's where we have you turn to tonight, Isaiah chapter 7. This is the place where we are told that his name would be Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And of course, we talked about that even last night. I think that was one of the trivia questions, and we all know that. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. That's what it means. Emmanuel equals God with us. The message of Christmas is that God, who is in heaven, came to be with us. The reality of Christmas is that he came to be with us. He came to be with you. The question for each and every person on planet Earth down through the ages is this. Do you want him with you? Do you want him with you? As we look closer at the context, and we're going to look at this context of Isaiah chapter 7. As we look at this context where this messianic name is given, it becomes clear that this is the question of the text. Are you going to believe God in your life? Are you going to trust God and have him with you in your life? Because he so desperately wants to be with you. Let's take a look at this passage and ask God to speak to us personally. There's basically two points that I'm going to look at tonight. The first one is this, our move, our move. God did something about our situation, and we have a move to make, and he has a continued move that he's making. We're going to talk about those two things. First, our move. Let's pick it up, Isaiah chapter 7. Let's pick it up in verse 10. It says this, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, hear now, O Israel, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Our move. We have a move. We have a choice in the matter as to whether we will allow God to be with us. His name will be called God with us. But we have a move, we have a decision to make whether we will allow God to truly be with us. Some people make the decision to be with God. They make the decision to receive him into their life and to receive his grace, his presence in their lives. Other people, for a variety of reasons, circumstances that arise in their lives, they choose not to believe God, not to trust God, and consequently to shut him out of their lives. And we have one of those circumstances here in our text here in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah, uh, the, the man who, whose name is on the book there, Isaiah, is, is a prophet. He's a prophet of God, and he's instructed by God. If you read the whole chapter, you'll get this, and we don't have time to read it tonight, but I'll give you the backstory. okay? Uh, Isaiah is instructed by God to take his son, uh, whose name happens to be Sheer. Jeshub, and we'll get to that in a little later because remember, what's in a name? Everything. Amen. And, uh, and, and he's instructed to take his son and go up to the king, go up to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and deliver his word to him, deliver a message. Now, Judah during this time was under tremendous pressure, assault. It was, it was, Judah was under 
uh, tremendous pressure from the potential of outside assault on Jerusalem. And specifically here in the context of Isaiah uh, chapter 7, uh, an, an alliance, an axis of uh, evil, if you will, this, this uh, uh, alliance of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. You say, Israel? Yeah. Well, Israel had departed from worshiping God for many, many years. And here, Israel uh, is uniting with Syria and causing a tremendous pressure upon Judah in the southern kingdom. And Judah... Uh, is, is just dealing with this circumstance. They're dealing with the constant pressure of, of, of the possibility of an attack from this particular alliance. And with everything that has happened, it, it's needless to say that Ahaz, the king of Judah, is not walking with God at this time. He, he had departed from, his, from the God of Israel, uh, from Yahweh. He was not serving the Lord. He was not doing the right things. He was not leading the nation to, to, to worship God and to allow God to be that central part of their lives. He, he was not trusting God. And we, we see this kind of a, a summary verse in the book of 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 2. You'll see it up on the screen, and it says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. And so this is a summary verse that where it says that, that Ahaz was not doing the right thing. He, they were not serving the Lord. Ahaz did not do what was right, and it resulted in tremendous hardship for Judah. It, it's tremendous, uh, terrible circumstances that they were in. They were now in a place where they were fearing this assault from this joint assault from Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom uh, of, of, of Israel, and specifically in Samaria, coming against them. So what does God do? God always has a move. Amen? God always has a move. When you're in your darkest times, when you're at the end of your rope, when you can't take it anymore, God always has a move, and he always draws near to you to, to, to be there because he wants to be with you. He wants to be your God. And so what does God do? God sends his prophet, Isaiah, and Isaiah's son, Sheer Jeshub, to talk to him. God sends Isaiah to give Ahaz a sign of his good intentions. And so Ahaz has a decision to make. It's the decision, it's the same decision that every single person has. It's, it's, it's the decision that we have. It's, we, the, you know, it's a, like a chess game and, and there's a move and then it's our turn and our turn to move. And we've got to make a choice what we're going to do. God has made it clear in his word that he is God with us. He's Emmanuel. He wants to be with you. He wants to be your God. He wants you to trust him wholeheartedly in your life for every single thing and to worship him all of your days. And so we have a move to make. We have a decision, and this is the decision that is going to be put right smack dab in the lap of Ahaz, king of Judah. He has a decision to make. Uh, and so what was God's message to Ahaz? Here, Isaiah is a prophet. He's the man who's bringing a message, bringing the Lord's message to Ahaz. And what was God's message to Ahaz? The Lord said to him, ask for yourself a sign from the Lord your God. That was his message. Look at that in verse 10 or 11. I'm sorry. 
Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. And so basically, this is what was happening. God was telling Ahaz, look, I want you, I'm giving you permission here. I'm giving you permission to ask for a sign from me and a sign that would be meaningful to you, that would declare unto you that I truly am the God, I am Yahweh, and I am the God who is faithful to a thousand generations. And so Ahaz, here's the message. Ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign. Wow. Now, if you look at the earlier context here, God had said that this alliance of Syria and Israel, that this, 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 these two groups that were coming together and, and were bringing this, this constant pressure upon Judah, he, he had said in the earlier context that it will come to nothing. He's actually stated it through Isaiah, and he says this will come to nothing. God calls them, he literally calls them smoking firebrands. You say, what in the world, what in the, what's God talking about? He's basically saying they're just a smoking nothing. You know, this isn't a fire. These, these aren't bombs going off. This is nothing. This is not, this is not a raging fire going off. This is just smoking firebrands. It, it's, it's, it's worse than it seems. In fact, they are just smoking firebrands, and they will be snuffed out soon. They will not even be a people within 65 years. You read it there in the first part of, of chapter 7. And so what does God do? God invites Ahaz to believe this. God is always inviting us to believe him, to believe his word, to take him at his word. This is, this is what God does. This, this is what God does from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve to Abraham to David to, to the prophets to, 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 to Jesus to the apostles. He's inviting us. He's bringing his message, his word to us, and he's inviting us to believe it. And, and God invites Ahaz to believe this. And, and he says to him in the, in the verse right before our text that we read in verse 9 of Isaiah 7, you'll have it up on the screen, God says this, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And so what God does is God allows, God has given every single person free will. We have free will, and the, 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 the world kind of plays out from there. We have a free will to serve God or to not serve God, to believe God's word or to not believe God's word, and face the consequences that will come into our lives as a result of not trusting the Lord, not believing God in our lives. But God goes on. He goes on from this, and he says, ask me, ask me for a sign. Now, many times in Scripture, God tells people that he won't give them a sign. Remember this? I mean, Jesus is, is, is famous for telling the Pharisees. Here the Pharisees are, are saying, Jesus, give us a sign. And, and it's kind of, it's, 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 it's a laughable situation, number one, because he had done repeated miracles in their sight. I mean, he, he had done incredible things. And here they are trotting out once again to Jesus, saying, give us a sign, Jesus. Prove who you are. Prove that you're this God and whatever. And, and Jesus says, you won't, there will not be a sign given to you, to this wicked and perverse generation, except for the sign that had already been given, the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the, the, the belly of the earth, if you will, for three days and rise again. And so that's the sign. 
But he says to the, the call for a sign from his critics, he says, no, I will not give you a sign. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this. It's, it, it, at first, it sounds, you know, you could read this, and without kind of really diving into the context, you could say, well, you know, it sounds somewhat spiritual, you know. Well, no, God, I'm not going to. I'm not going to ask you for a sign. I'm I'm not going to do this thing. I mean, we're not to test the Lord our God. We're not to do these types of things. And you can even assign some, you know, spirituality to to Ahaz in this situation. He almost seems to uh, be in line with what Jesus would later say. No, I I will not give you this perverse and, and wicked generation. I will not give you a sign. But his heart, that, that wasn't his heart. You could take it that way, but that you would be a mess in the context. And you would be missing the central point is that he's refusing to ask for a sign because he knows that if he asks for a sign that God is going to come through and then he would be forced to believe and to trust upon God. And he has walked away in rebellion from trusting God. He doesn't want God near in his life. He's doing his own thing. Now, why? here's the question when you look at this. Why? Why would Ahaz take this position? Why would he dig his heels in like this? I mean, I, I, I got to believe that pretty much everyone here, I mean, I don't know everybody, but I got to believe that if a prophet of God showed up on your doorstep and said, God's, God's given you permission to ask for a sign, we would, be, we would be, well, give me a few minutes. Let me think this through. I'm going to come up with a great and mighty sign, you know, that, that God's going to bring... You know, we wouldn't reject, but here Ahaz is rejecting. And the question is, why is he taking this position? Judah had already been through a lot of disasters at the hands of the Syrians and Israel, their, their, the, 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 the northern kingdom who, who, who had already rejected God as well and, and had invited, oh man, you just read the kings and you see uh, the, the, the absolute idolatry and, and pagan worship that Israel had invited into, into, into the land and, and, and it, it's just, um, it, it just takes you back. But this is what has happened and, and Judah is going through this as well. And even though this was a result, everything that Judah was going through, it, it was a result of, of Judah's sin. It was, a, it was a result of their lack of worship of God, uh, of their lack of trusting God. What does Ahaz do? He blames God for it. And, and, and again, this is something that a lot of people do because they find themselves, we all at times in our lives, find ourselves in difficult situations we find ourselves asking the proverbial question, why? How? How did this come to be in my life? Why am I in a circumstance that is so hard, that is so difficult? God must not be here. God must not love me. He must have rejected me. Therefore, I must, I must reject him. And people get very angry. They get upset. They reject God. They don't want. They reject the message of Christmas. Maybe they're even invited to a service and they say, well, it's all nice and good and the bows and the lights and the songs were great. But you know what? This is where it just really gets tense for me. Because of the situations, the things that have happened in our lives. And for Judah, it was no different. And it's, it's what a lot of people do. Now, again, I mentioned it earlier. God has given us free will. He's given every single person free will. And a lot of the things that happen 
in our lives happen as a result of the choices that we've made. And because everyone else in the world has free will, some of the things that happen in our lives are a result of the, of the rebellion and sin and, 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 and wrong decisions that other people have made. And so there can be a compounding effect in, in our lives of, of all this. But God is a, is a God who is wanting to come into the midst of our circumstance. He's wanting to come into the midst of the situation, and he's wanting to bring healing. He's wanting to bring restitution. He's wanting to bring justice. He's wanting to bring hope and forgiveness and ultimate, uh, ultimate cleansing from all of it and healing. And this is what God wants to do. You've got to realize that God wants to be with you and redeem your situation. You know, nothing more. There's nothing more that he wants to do than to be with you and to redeem your situation, whatever it may be tonight. Perhaps he said in his mind, I I want nothing to do with the God who allowed it to get this bad in Judah. I want nothing to do with a God who would allow these circumstances, these pressures, these enemies to encamp and circle around us. Wow. You know what, though? I believe, if we're all being honest tonight, every single one of us has been in Ahaz's place. We've been in Ahaz's place. We've rejected the grace of God, maybe for a period of time, maybe even for a moment, for one reason or another, to justify ourselves, to justify our own decisions, to justify the circumstance that we find ourselves in, to make us feel better about it. One commentator said this about it. He said, here, let us each descend and dive into his own conscience to see whether we also have not matched Ahaz in his madness or at least wise coasted to near upon his unkind usage of the Lord by rejecting his sweet offers of grace and motions of mercy. So what was Ahaz's move? We're talking about our move. We're talking about Ahaz's move. What was Ahaz's move? Ahaz, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 12, I'll have it up on the screen for you. He said, it says this, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So he says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And then he, basically, he goes on basically to insult the Lord. You say, what, is, what does this have to do with Christmas? Hold on. <laughs> We're getting there. People don't understand the Bible is a deep story of absolute truth that comes to us. He goes on to insult the Lord. Look at verse 13. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing to you, for you to weary men? For you also to weary men, but will you weary God also? You have to understand what he's saying. He's, it's, it's, it's a direct insult to the Lord. In other words, he says, don't bother. Don't bother. Don't bother the men and don't bother the Lord with this at all either. This is like saying, you know what? I've been trying to believe. I've been trying to believe you, God. I've been trying to see what you wanted to do, what you wanted to do in my situation. And you know what? No, don't bother the Lord. Don't weary the Lord with this. This is Ahaz. Wow. Spurgeon, the great preacher 
of London from a century ago, he, he was just aghast at this verse here, 13. We're getting to the, the fun one here in a second, okay? Just hold on. But, but, but Spurgeon was aghast at this, at this particular verse. He, he said this, Did I not hear someone say, Ah, sir, I have been trying to believe for years. Terrible words. They make the case still worse. Imagine that after I had made a statement, a man should declare that he did not believe me. In fact, he could not believe me, though he would like to do so. I should feel aggrieved, certainly, but it would make matters worse if he added, in fact, I have been for years trying to believe you, and I cannot do it. What does he mean by that? What can he mean but that I am so incorrigibly false and such a confirmed liar that though he would give me some credit, he really cannot do it. With all the effort he can make in my favor, he finds it quite beyond his power to believe me. Now, a man who says, I have been trying to believe in God, in reality says that with regard to the Most High. And so this was Ahaz's move. This was what he said when the prophet came knocking on his door. Now, the question for us tonight is, what will our move be? What will our move be? While you're deciding what your move will be, God continues to reveal and declare his intentions, even in the context of Ahaz insulting God. What's that? God's move is to be with you. That's our second point. God's move is to be with you. Pick it up, verse 14. After the insult, this is what God says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. You don't want to ask me for a sign? You're going to insult me further? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we're all current, right? Now we're all we're on familiar turf, familiar ground. God said, okay, I'll give you a sign, a sign anyways. God so wants to give us grace. I don't, we don't understand. We don't understand to the level that God wants to give grace. Grace is undeserved favor. And here it really is undeserved. Amen. I mean, we'd all jump. We'd all pile on at this point, right? We'd all pile on Ahaz. What? You're going to insult the Lord? You're going to tell God not to bother? I'm piling on at this point. Undeserved grace. And the grace extended is rejected, and yet God still offers grace. <laughs> grace extended and rejected, and here he comes again with, with some more. Because he's relentless with his love. He's relentless with his grace. He's relentless because he is Emmanuel by his very character. What's it a name? I'll give you a sign. God's going to give Ahaz a sign that this alliance and this threat of Syria and Israel will come to nothing. What's the sign? What follows is one of the most famous of all prophecies concerning the Messiah. But one thing to know about prophecy is that it can have a, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. It can have a near immediate fulfillment and yet a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment was that a young woman conceived and bore a son. And before he came to the age of accountability, of choosing good and evil, 
around 12 to 13 years of old. Pekah and Rezin, the kings of Syria and Israel and Samaria, the kings of Syria and Israel are going to be wiped out. They'll no longer be reigning over Syria and over Samaria within 12 or 13 years. And, and this is what he says. You have to read down to get that. He says, curds and honey, verse 15, he shall eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by her kings. Okay, so you got that? Sorry about that. I failed to read down to verse 17. You're wondering, how, where are you getting this from? <laughs> it's right there. This is part of the prophecy. Before the boy that's going to be born, the son, reaches an age of being able to make that decision, that place of accountability, that these kings, this threat, is going to be dissolved. This, was, this is the immediate near fulfillment of this particular uh, prophecy. But there's also a far fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment and there's also a far fulfillment. This prophecy in its long term was the prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ. In that the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, how do you know? How do you know this far fulfillment of this passage? We know that this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, but because it is interpreted by the Holy Spirit in Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 23, as a prophecy, when it speaks there of how Mary and Joseph were engaged before they had relations and Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Matthew, in the gospel, it says there, Matthew 1, verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so here the gospel writer is, is connecting the dots for us under the inspiration of the Spirit from Isaiah to the far fulfillment now that is present that Jesus Christ is being born to Mary and to Joseph. And his name is Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So Matthew's gospel, as Matthew writing by the Holy Spirit interprets this passage, of Scripture. He interprets it to be a prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We know that this passage speaks of Jesus because it says that he will be known as Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This is true of what God did in sending his son to be born as a human. God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity. You see, a, a, a child was born in Isaiah 9. A child was born, but a son was given. You see, a baby was born, but a son was given. This speaks of the pre-incarnate nature of the second person of the Godhead. And so this speaks of Emmanuel. It speaks of his nature in sending the second person of the Trinity to be with us as he was born as a human. Now, I have heard people down through the years struggling to believe say something along these lines. If God is real, why doesn't he just show himself to us? 
And this is exactly what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Why doesn't he show himself? If he's God, if he's the Lord, why doesn't he make himself manifest? And that's exactly what he did. He prophesied, the prophets foretold that he would come, that he would invade this earth as a human, that he would come to bring his love, to bring his grace, to bring the offer of redemption and salvation and to go and take our place in that place of penalty and judgment that was upon us and take it upon himself as he hung there on the cross for us. This is exactly what Christmas is all about. God showing himself to us, coming to be with us in our predicament, our predicament of sin, our predicament of death, and to redeem us from it if we will trust and believe. Emmanuel speaks of the deity of Jesus, God with us, and his identification and nearness to man, God with us. Amen? Now let me bring you back to the start. What's in a name? What's in a name? As far as Ahaz is concerned, God provided, God proved himself to be God with us. As far as Ahaz is concerned, God proved himself to be God with us. He's a God of his word, keeping his promise. What did God say he was going to do? He told Ahaz what he was going to do. Hey, look, if here's what this, these guys are going to be wiped out. They're smoking fire, uh, smoking brands. They're going to be wiped out. And if you will, he gives them the offer to believe it. And Ahaz rejects that. He still brings the sign. So what does God do? God keeps his promise. God keeps his word. God is faithful to exactly everything that he has said and declared. And so as far as Ahaz is concerned, God proved himself to be God with us, Emmanuel. How great is God at keeping his promise? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, I'll have it up on the screen. It says this, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. You say, okay, wait a second. He's God and he's faithful to keep covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. What happens to the the thousand and first? A thousand is if to say... Don't worry about it. I'm going to keep on going. Okay? I've done it from one through a thousand, and I'm going to keep on being the God of my word, the God of a promise. I'm a God who keeps covenant and mercy to a thousand generations, so don't you worry about whether God's going to keep his promise or not. What's in a name? As far as you're concerned, God doubled down. God doubled down on the whole situation. He said, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. And the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is to say God with us. Wow. 
He came into this world to be near to you. He came into this world to pay the price of sin and shame and to offer you what? How does John conclude his gospel? Life in his name. What's in a name? Everything when it comes to God. Now it's your move. <laughs> 